Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show In this week's conversation, we are chatting to Mr. William Curley. And when it comes to chocolatier patissiers, William Curley is literally a world-class player. He is one of only seven chefs in the United Kingdom to have achieved a master of culinary arts. And the chance to earn this accolade, which is the culinary equivalent of a Nobel Prize, only comes round every four years. And it took William three attempts commitment and gruelling as you will hear. Now perhaps it's not surprising that William has done so brilliantly since as well as having natural talent he's fostered that talent by working with some of the very best. From the moment he became an apprentice at Glen Eagles followed by stints with acclaimed chefs such as Pierre Kaufman, Anton Edelman, Raymond Blanc and Marco Pierre White. Now, you might think that working with big personalities and big brands, Harrods, Claridge's, the Savoy, I could go on, would have gone to William's head. But not a bit of it. As you'll hear, William is delightful, down to earth, and humbled by the fact he was able to crowdfund his latest venture, his very own boutique shop in the heart of Soho. This means he can continue to be hands-on, creating amazing chocolates and chocolate patissiere. Be warned, your mouth is going to water during the course of this conversation, but we are going to learn so much. I very much hope you enjoy it. William Curley, thank you so much for sparing the time to uh, to have a chat with me today. It's uh, really appreciated. You're welcome. It's great to be here. So can you just explain? I like to always set the scene before I start, because this is an audio thing. So people will be driving their cars or walking their dogs or doing the washing up. As you uh, do. Yeah. We've got a stunning view, but not normally my countryside view. Do you mind just uh, yeah setting the scene? Where are we in the world? Yes, we're on uh, the 38th floor in the Gherkin building in the city of London. And we're... We're at the window here, looking out into the, the great city that London is. It's not too shabby. I will put a photo up on the, uh, on, on the podcast page. But yeah, what a, what a great city. And you've been here a while. I've been... Uh, not, well, not in this room. Well, not in this room, no, but well, I've, I've been story. in London over 25 years. So I, I guess, uh, although I'm very proud to be Scottish, I have become, I guess, a Londoner by default. Amazing. So I'm looking forward to going into your uh, into your career of what you do now, and you've got some amazing kind of track records, and uh, and it's a real privilege. And, and God, I've got you know hats off to you for that. I appreciate how hard you'll have worked. But before we get there, I just want to go to what the trigger points were. So your first memories of getting into cooking, what was the trigger? I Ooh. understand you used to cook with Granny a bit. Yes, my grandmother. Yes, yes. So my, my father was a dock worker, uh, and my mother worked for British Gas. And at the weekends, we were shuffled off myself and my sister. That is to my grandmother's um, house and she loved baking uh, when she'd been younger she worked in a private house as a chef or a baker so we made things like dundee cakes madeira cakes scones swiss rolls 
lots and lots of millionaire shortbread. You know, we made a lot of coconut bars. We made lots of things with her, uh, which, you know, at the time it was like, oh, I'm cooking my granny, you know, sort of, I, I guess, uh, pretending not to be really excited about it, but I used to actually really enjoy, you know, whether it was licking the bowl or mixing something or helping her whisk egg whites to put into, or to make a meringue, you know. So it was all, all, all kind of there at the beginning, but it was something, it wasn't, I wouldn't have a plan to be a chef, if, if that makes sense. Uh, like many young boys, I got to 15, 16, with very little uh, qualifications. I drifted through school and I really had the choices of going to a technical college, or a YTS scheme, uh, and, and I took the technical college in principle to do woodwork. Okay. And when I arrived there, I went to the woodwork class and I looked over my shoulder and I saw a class of uh, 15 girls doing cooking. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, that looks absolutely fabulous, the cooking that was. Brilliant, yeah, uh, of course. And, and, yeah. I, and I went there and that really was the beginning, if you like. Really? Wow. God, so if that room had been full of boys, then that, that uh, could have uh, been a very different, uh, uh, yeah, a very yeah, different yeah, life. Yeah, I've placed it in the, the woodwork <laughs> class. You'd have, yeah, yeah, would have made yeah, wood. You could have been yeah. carving ships or something <laughs> like that. So, uh, Okay, so literally from school then, you pretty much went, went straight into it? Straight into it, yeah. And, 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 it, and it's funny, at no point have I ever looked back and thought, thought to myself, gosh, I, I wish I went down a different route. I've right. always been really happy, really excited. You know, I've, I've, done a, I've taken a career path that at no point have I ever regretted. I've, I've always really enjoyed this. So I never look and think, oh, I wish I had been this. I wish I'd been a chippier, wow. uh, a carpenter. It's never really happened. So which, is, which is quite, you know, unusual, I guess. It so is, yeah. Particularly in, in hospitality, because I think the compromise you make in this industry is it, it can be really anti-social hours. It's hard work. It's a lot of work in nights and weekends when you're in the kitchen in those early days. So uh, I think there's enough people who've, who've, who've looked out of their windowless hot yeah. box in the kitchen and thought, my God, why I, am I doing this? I think absolutely. I think, I think when you're young, in the very beginning, I mean, I went, I, I became a, an apprentice at Glenigo's Hotel when I was 17. And that was really, you know, very raw then. I, I specialised in pastry very quickly. That was an option that was given to me as part of my apprenticeship. But I can remember doing split shifts, always five days a week, but occasionally six days. And of course, you've got friends back home who are, they've got jobs, but they're living for the weekends, the Friday nights, etc. And you're working a lot of weekends because weekends are obviously the busy times, particularly in hotels. So you're, you're, you're thinking, oh gosh, I can go back in and have a good time. But, but I, I don't know, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, it's just, I, I lived in there, which is really exciting. When you're 17 years old, you've left Scotland twice in your life. And you go to a big hotel, it's full of young people. It's, uh, it's exciting, you're learning. It was it was it was that's, good times. That's a really fast trajectory to go straight into Glen Eagles. How did you how did you get that mm, so, so young? Yeah, that did, I, I, you know in my little journey, many things, many opportunities and, and openings have came to me, and, and that would be one. So I did a a course at Glenotis Technical College, which was an old city and guilds course. That was uh, for you know a year and a half, two years, and at the end of it, we put out in a placement. Uh, an idea with the placement is to to give you somewhere to train and hopefully they'll take you on as as, as, as a job, you know, to start your career. And, and I was put out to St Andrews, which isn't that far, you know, where, where I live, uh, to the Old Course Hotel. Uh, and I spent my, my sort of two months, you know, internship, if you like, there. And then at the end, they offered me a job and I thought, this is fantastic. But the job was only going to be till October because the hotel was going to close because they were doing renovations, et cetera, et cetera, and, and reopen again in the spring. 
And I thought, well, okay, well, I'll, I'll take that. That's a job. My dad's happy. I've got a job. Keep him, you know, keep him sweet. Uh, and of course, he had reservations about what I was doing. You, you know, I, I guess, you know, in that world, manual, doc, tough, 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 uh, an amazing bloke my father father was. But cooking didn't, you know, was that a, a, a route for his laddie, if, if you like? Yeah. Uh, and of course, you can, well, the, the listeners can't see, but I've not got, you know, my father was a very strong-built Man, I mean, I've got little chicken arms here. <laughs> so it probably wasn't the route I was going to go anyway. But I always remember there was reservations here. But he was very happy that I'd got a job and I was getting paid and I was getting on in life. That, that, was, that was kind of fundamental to him. But when I was at the old course, they said to me, what we can do for you, however, Willie, we can organise you a job somewhere else uh, during that period and then come back to the old course. And that's going to be at Glen Eagles Hotel. So I went to Glen Eagles. They said, that's great, we can organise that for you, but you could, if you want, look at an apprenticeship. So I sort of, you know, hummed and hawed and thought, what should I do? Went back to the old course, and the chef here was called Billy Campbell, and I always remember going to speak to him. And before I'd even sat down, he goes, you want to go, Glenn, he goes, full-time and be an apprentice. I said, I do. He said, why don't you do that? And, you know, I thought, fair play, because he could have been selfish and said, look, you need to come back, we've agreed to do this, but he thought that was a better route for me, get get a foundation in what I do, get training in what I do, and, and really give me a platform to build a little career. So Good. I think that's a good thing sometimes in hospitality is it's a, it's a human-based industry. Very and much. I think we get it. It's kind of like, look, you know, go and, go and live a great life, live a good life and, and fulfil your potential. Yeah, so. and I have people that work for me and, and you know, I, I like, I, I want them to spend a chunk of, you know, of time with me. If someone comes for three, four months, it, it's, it's kind of pointless. Mm. If someone spends 18 months, two years, and they feel they need to go on the next part of their journey, you know, I want to wish them well yeah, and, and I want to thank them for that because that's a, a chunk of time they spent with me. And some people stay longer, uh, which is amazing. But realistically, you know, you, you have to be unselfish in our industry and, and let people, you know, go on that journey because I think in that way, there's nothing worse than someone not being happy in what they do. And, and also other people in your team will see that you've given the opportunity for them to move on. And you can always help them as well on that journey. I think yeah. that's important. Yeah, and invariably, uh, if it's meant to be, people people come back later on, and the more they've learned while they're away, the better. Uh, absolutely, so. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the uh, the trajectory then, was was the Savoy next, or did that oh, come no, a little there was, bit there was later? Oh, no, there was a fair bit in the middle. There was a, there so, was a few bits in between. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, I spent my, my three years apprenticeship at, at Glen Eagles. I used to go through to Glasgow uh, College of Food and Technology on one of my days off. And then I got to the sort of ripe old age of 20 and I decided that my, my apprenticeship was going to finish and I needed to go and see the world. And I think by now I'd left Scotland maybe four times. Uh, but I'd been told, and this is the early 90s, that where you need to go to work in the best establishments, because, because by now I'd really got the kind of cooking bug. I was very determined and I wanted to be the best at what I could do. And I wanted to work in the very best places to do that. And the Glen Eagles had, you know, very much that, the, the, the pastry chef, then was a chap called Ian Ironside, and Ian's passed away now. But Ian, you know, helped give me a lot of the foundation, having my work today, a lot of that base. And and he had been the head patissier at the Savoy many many years beforehand. So it was kind of amazing, you know. I did go on obviously to become the chef patissier at the Savoy to kind of, you know, uh, square that box off that there was a kind of link there. Someone who trained me initially, and that's where I went. But he had said to me that you know go to France. And, and there was no Google, there was no internet like there is today. So I, uh, I went into Perth on my, my split shift. I bought a Michelin guide because I'd heard Michelin restaurants, two, two three-star restaurants, it's where you need to go and work. So I thought, right, I'm, I'm going to go away and do this. So I got this guide for France. I think at the time there was 17, 18, three Michelin-star restaurants, uh, or certainly in the cities in, in, in Paris, uh, in, sorry, in France. And, and I wrote off all my letters 
I spoke very little, if any, French at, at that point, and I got airmail paper, and I went and wrote these letters. I got one response, which started with a no, and I thought, gosh, that's not going well. But not to be, uh, you know, not, not back, I got back up, and I, uh, I contacted some people who knew people in Belgium, and before I knew it, I was on a, a plane off to Brussels to work in a three-meeting-star restaurant just outside... Uh, Brussels in a little town called Hullert and the restaurant was called Pierre Romier, uh, Maison de Bouche. And I spent uh, a season, best part of a year, working in the pastry kitchen there. It was very, very, you know, exciting. It was a, a total diversion of Glen Eagles. So Glen Eagles was a, a very grand hotel, very, very traditional, which, which I like tradition. I think that's very important, especially when you're, you're, you're training. But although there may have been about 15 chaps and chapettes in the, in the pastry kitchen, you know, we were doing banquets for a few hundred. There was private rooms, there was afternoon teas. There was breakfast, boulangerie. There was petit fours, there was ice creams, cakes, biscuits, you name it, bedroom amenities. It was a very, very busy, bustling place doing a lot of things. At Maison de Bouche, we were catering for 40 for lunch, 60 for dinner, and there was four or five guys in the pastry kitchen. It was a complete different world. Everything was, you know, in search of perfection and, and I'd never experienced this before and I was really really excited how you know there was so much time and effort put into every single aspect of what was being served to the customer and, and I loved this um, so I, I set about I enjoyed my work there I learned a lot there I did go to Hope to learn French but they spoke Flemish <laughs> but, but they were really kind but it was an amazing place and, and, and I always remember how kind they were to me I actually lived in the little town in Hulart on, on my Todd and we were off on Monday so we worked on a Sunday lunch and we were close Sunday evening but Mr Romeo gave me a key to the restroom so on a Monday I could go to the restaurant and help myself to have a bit of lunch wow, really? and I just think wow I look back at that now and I think how kind that really was it was incredible nice. really uh, I left there and I decided that I was going to come to London. This was where uh, this was where it was happening, I guess. This is the, the early 90s. Pierre Kaufman at La Tonclair was probably at the time the, the restaurant to come to. He had just received three Michelin stars. So I got the night bus back from Brussels. I went to work with Mr Kaufman. I spent the next three years there at La Tonclair in Chelsea. Uh, I went there really just as, I guess, a commie patissier. I, I worked my way up in his kitchen and I, and I left as his, his head patissier. An amazing restaurant. We did absolutely everything. Of course, we did the bread. We did all our own, you know, how would I put it? Every aspect of everything we'd done, we'd done. If we're going to have comfy orange on a dish or on petit fours, we'd comfy the orange ourselves. If we're going to use fondant in a dish, we made our own fondant, made our own marzipan. Everything was made at Mr. Kaufman's. There was nothing, no shortcuts. There was no half-made uh, ingredients. Everything was very, very raw and very true. And a whole, I loved his philosophy and everything would come in on the day, ingredient-wise, and within a day or two, it was all sold to the customer, very fast-moving, very uh, clean, very natural. Uh, and this really, I guess, was where I always look, where I, I guess I became a boy to a man, if you want. Just, I guess, not only that, living in London, it was kind of fast, 
Fast and Furious, and it was very, very exciting. Because you ended up working with uh, Marco Pierre White, with Raymond Blanc, but yes. was it was it Pierre Kaufman that had the greatest impression yeah, on you? 100%, you were... Yeah, 100%, yeah. And, and to this day, I still you know, I still keep in contact with Mr. Kaufman. He's been a massive supporter, a great influence in, in, in what I do. And I think those years there really, you know, whereas Glen Eagles uh, uh, with Ian and, and Pierre Rummy gave me that beginning and, and that, you know, it got me focused on where I wanted to be. I think the time at La Tonclair really, uh, you, you know, helped evolve me. It gave me that structure. It, it gave me a real direction and purpose of where I wanted, where I wanted to go and what I wanted to be. And I guess it was at that period, at that time, that I also decided that one day I wanted to have my own, my own little shop, if you like. And, and I always remember on a Friday evening, uh, there was a night bus at the time. There was no Eurostar initiative at that time, or, or it was just beginning. I think I, don't, I actually don't think Eurostar was was was, was in motion at this time. And uh, I used to get the night bus from Victoria to Paris on a Friday quite often, maybe once, I guess once every other month I'd go to go and look at patisserie shops in, in Paris and just walk the streets during a Saturday. I was, I guess, pretty tired when I when I went. Like, I was kind of living off sugar. So guys at that time, Pierre Hermie was at Fauchon. Jean-Paul Heaven, Christian Constant, just walking around, getting inspiration. And, and, and I didn't really know where it was going to go and what it was, you know, what the journey was, but I knew that was something I really liked and I'd like to try to do one day. I had no idea how to do it, of course, but I had something in my mind. And I guess you're right. I then went to work with Raymond Blanc at La Mama Cassie's on. I went to work with Marco for a number of years. You know, that for me, I, I knew where my journey was going now. How, how I say, how, how how it was going to get there, I don't really, I didn't really know at that time, but it was giving me that foundation. And I also spent a, a season at Mark Minot in Burgundy, uh, who, who, who ironically enough is one of the chefs that I wrote to when I was at Glen Eagles, because I won a little scholarship, the William Hippenstall Scholarship, and that gave me that uh, opportunity. Wow, it's an incredible, uh, yeah, you know, journey with some with some top class chefs. I'm sure a lot of people listening will have no idea. I mean, the, the pastry chefs, you know, patissier, the, the chocolate kind of stuff, the level of detail anyway, in any mm. kitchen, the, the, the kind of pastry is always where the detail happens and the, and the precise, I can't imagine in a, in a three Michelin star restaurant, just the level of attention and, and love. Yeah. But can you just explain a little bit about why, why is that part of the kitchen so technical? I, I, yeah, well, I guess what we do, uh, and, and this is one of the reasons I love what we do, you've got a mixture of science and art put together. So if you're going to make a, a, a beautiful pat of sucre or a beautiful pat, pat of brise, pat of foitage, you've got to follow the recipe correctly because if you don't, it's not going to work. It's knackered. Uh, so then you have this beautiful puff pastry and then you're going to put, you're, you're going to do a lovely fresh milfoil. You're going to put some fresh creme patissier, maybe a little bit of, you know, some fromage jam that you've made and some fresh berries between the layers. When you execute this and you, when you cut this, you've got to do this really, really well to make it beautiful, whether it's in a, in a restaurant, whether it's in a shop. So you can make this great puff pastry and follow the recipe incredibly well, but if you don't execute it well, it'll look really rough and ragged. And then the customer thinks, gosh, that's not so, that's not worth £7.50 or £10 or whatever you're going to sell at. So, so you have this pressure. You have to make things look and execute really, really well. Uh, so, so I guess in what I do, you know, you're always looking for the artistic qualities to come to the fore. But fundamentally, if you've not made your pastry right or your custard right or your chocolate mousse right, it's not going to taste great and no one's going to, you know, come back again. So, so you have a bit of pressure there to get it to, together. I'm not saying in cooking you don't have that, but I think that 
you've got a little bit more the boundaries are a little bit looser if you want in cuisine yeah no i agree 100 yeah, yeah the, the the stress of noticing that you're um i don't know your dessert's not set just pre-service yeah, is different to yeah. uh you know to the fact that the steak needs another couple of minutes yes. to rest it's you've a got it's, it's a different more scale forgiving. isn't it yeah so, and, and uh, i think what fascinates me behind patisserie and, and, and chocolate is you know you know when i grew up i didn't realize that was a profession i i, I, I presumed initially i was going to be a chef and even when I'd been at the college, there was an old baker, Dave Bryson, his name was, and there was another chap called Scott Lyle. They put loads and loads of time and effort into to helping me uh, evolve and, 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 and I guess training what I was, was, was you know, the, the journey I was about to embark on. Uh, and, and when I was at the college, you know, we, we, I worked in a little restaurant with Scott Lyle uh, doing desserts. And with Dave at the college, you know, we, we used to do lots of great bakery items, your Milfoy, Claire's, et cetera. But I didn't realize, really until I went to Glen Eagles, this was actually a profession within, you know, the whole umbrella of, of cooking. But when you actually look at patisserie and chocolate work, you know, it's, it's massive. There's so many different journeys within it, specializing within. When I was at the Savoy, you know, we had about half a dozen different sections. So we would have, obviously, restaurants where you had desserts. There was a petit four section. There was a tourier section where you'd make all the different pastes and parts and line quiches and line flans and tarts, etc. And then savory items, you know, roulades and cheese straws and, and, and what have you. There's also an ice cream section. Uh, and there was also an artistic section where you'd be doing chocolate and sugar sculptures. There's so many different facets to what we do. It's quite incredible, really. It is. And you ended up as the, uh, what were you, you were the youngest chef, Patissier, at the Savoy, 20, 21 people in your brigade, uh, was it? Yeah, like yeah, I was just turning, I think, 28 when I arrived at the, uh, at the Savoy uh, and there was 21 guys in the team. And, that that and must have been very different going then from just the yeah. cooking because then all of a sudden yeah. you're managing a team, you've got that responsibility. Yeah. How was, complete the, how was that change? Complete different set of skills. And of course, when you arrive, uh, you, and it was a time also, I mean, and I worked, you know, under the chef de cuisine, Anthony Edelman, who, who, who was incredibly, probably after, pro, in many ways as much as Mr. Kaufman, but he certainly was very uh, supportive, uh, helped me on the journey, probably taught me a new set of skills, maybe skills that, you know, I had to work harder to achieve than maybe just raw cooking. Because uh, fundamentally, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little cook. I, I, I like to get on with it and cook and get my hands dirty. Man management's a complete different skill. Uh, you know, I'm sure you know, it's not, not the easiest thing in the world. Hugely. And Anton was incredible at that. He knew how to get the best out of people. He knew... Some people you, you had to encourage with a hand on the shoulder. Some people you could maybe raise the voice slightly, let's say. Uh, and, and I learned a lot from him. And I think when I arrived at the Savoy, you know, I was, I was maybe not <laughs> the typical sort of head patissier in that type of, you know, more corporate world, if you like. The, the hotels are much more corporate than in restaurants. In restaurants, more often than not, it's the chef that owns the restaurant so you report into him he's your chef he's the boss it's it there's one man in charge here in a large hotel you have lots of layers of bureaucracy and it's a much more complex uh, you know <laughs> operation I, I think under Anton I think at the Savoy during that time it worked for me you know I think to go back into that corporate world and hotels and I would be even much more tougher I guess yeah, yeah. Is, is the management style because kitchens have a reputation as being hot and angry um, I think it's changing a little bit maybe yeah, not, and not I think, I think but, for the good I think there was an era where you know things maybe would go too far I think there's a nice balance in things but they do need 
a kitchen needs energy and, and you've got to create that energy one way or the other and, and, and hence why you do get things yeah. that can reach boiling point. Was it, was it different in, in the pastry section anyway? Was it a bit calmer yeah. because uh, it tends to be a yeah, longer process? Yeah, and I think so. It's also quite often in a pastry kitchen just due to uh, what we make, we want it to be a little bit cooler. Yeah, uh, So we don't want not, to be rolling puff pastry beside a, uh, an incredibly hot stove. Yeah. So, and, and, and I think temperature can free, you know, people's <laughs> temperatures uh, and you, get, you can get yourself incredibly wound up in a very hot kitchen. There's no question about that. I think in what I do, it's a bit more balanced and a bit more, uh, you know, less aggravated. Yeah, well, say. it's a very precise part of yeah. the kitchen, I think, yeah. isn't it? So I, I would presume it can't be as, as hot-headed. Yeah, I, 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 I think what I do know as you get older, I, I think, you know, you, you can show it people if you like, but I think you can lose them really quickly. Yeah. I think there's a way to go about things. You know, Ultimately, I employ quite a few people, and you need to get the best out of them. But running around the kitchen, just shouting it, swearing it, everyone. Mm. I don't think that's the way forward. No, and I think it put a lot of people off coming into the kitchens, yeah, and we yeah. might come to that a little bit more with the with the sort of work yeah. you're doing on on the next generation. But before we do, so what prompted you then to go off on your own? I think it was about 2004, was it? Yes, Something like that. What, that's was, what right. was the yeah, trigger? Yeah, to, the uh, trigger. I, I guess I'd been, I guess, best part of five years at the the Savoy, uh, and that was actually really hard. To leave the Savoy, I think that was coming. You know, my journey there had I'd done I'd done my work there. If you like, I don't I don't. You know, I think like in all, we all know when it's time to move on. Quite often, it's when it's your own business. I was say, you can, yeah, you can, you you can't ever move on. Yeah, yeah. but I, 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 and I, lo- I, lo- I love the history of the Savoy. There was something very unique about it, and I think with the link with Ian, uh, and it was a very special place for me. Uh, so to leave was quite hard, and, and I can always remember, you know you know, taking my trolley and my box with my equipment and my knives and going. I was kind of quite sad that day. I always, always remember that. But my new journey was to, to be my own boss, I guess, and, and to do my own thing. And I thought about leaving London. I actually went to look at opportunities in New York, uh, which I quite liked. Uh, and I was quite keen at one point to go there. And I also looked at potentially going to Singapore, which I liked, but it was a bit too hot and humid for me, which I decided that that wasn't going to work. But when it all came down to it, I wanted to stay in London, and I think that's where I kind of built my little, my little reputation. That's where my career had evolved, and I thought this is the right place for me to stay. So at the time, with my uh, with my first wife, uh, Suzu, we uh, embarked on opening a little business, a little shop, and I guess that that was the dream. It was, you know, it was where I wanted to be, and we found a fabulous little shop on Pave Court in Richmond upon Thames, where we were able to, I guess, do a, what I think was a good deal at the time to. to to, to have a little boutique. We had a kitchen upstairs, the retail shop downstairs, and off we went selling chocolates and patisserie. Um, and it was very, very exciting. And, and that ran, uh, well, that ran for, you know, about 12 years. Uh, and and it had lots of more ups and downs, I guess, but the, the business evolved in many different ways. And, and, and But that was the beginning of all, yeah. Okay. So those um, most uh, businesses in, in hospitality fail, you know, most of them do. Yeah, most yeah, of them they fail do in the first two years. Of course they do, yes, yes. Uh, so that must have been very different, going from being in sort of, you know, in other people's businesses. What was those first couple of years like? Was mm, that was that, tough? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, tough, because I think when you open a, 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 a little retail outlet, and it still is today, my business is very much made up of loyal customers and them spreading the word. You know, advertising is not something I've ever done. PR, we, we get a little fair share of it. But, 
you know, if you really want to build your customer base up, it's all about interacting with customers. It's all about them buying a box of chocolates to take to uh, their friends and then them loving it and then saying, oh, I need to buy William Curley chocolates or I need to go there to get a chocolate cake or, you know, a sack or tot, whatever it's going to be. That is the, uh, you know, that's fundamental, if you like. That's kind of key to what we, what we do. When I started out, I had a little bit of consultancy work which probably helped prop me up. <clears throat> uh, but we, we just, I guess we just built a good following in Richmond and, and it kind of worked. Yeah. Well done. Um, and one of the big changes there, there must have been complete creative freedom, although I suppose you had that to an extent because you were at the top of your game. Um, but did that create create anything interesting? Sort of what did you do with it? What did you yeah. do differently once no, you no, were your you, own boss? You, you're actually 100% right. You, you know, I, I work for incredible talented chefs but at the end of the day it's their restaurant or they're the head chef at the Savoy and they will have their style that they want to run through their food now of course the older you get and the more experience you get they leave you more to things they speak with you you'll be involved in you know the new menu the new petit four selection whatever it's going to be there's always you know your input but it's never 100% you you know, you're the pastry chef. It's, you know, you, you can sit as high up as you want in your profession. You can be in charge of the patisserie, but fundamentally you're always going to report into someone <clears throat> in that environment. When you open your own little boutique, it is you 100%. So finding, you know, I guess your style, what, what your skills that you've learned, the foundation you've got, what, you know, ultimately in food, I always think when you when you eat someone's cakes, chocolates in, in a restaurant, what have you, you're eating that chef's food. You know that embodies his personality. That is what he believes in. I mean, I mean the one thing Mr. Kaufman always said to me is he serves what he likes to eat, and I do exactly the same. So I really look at what we sell as as chocolates, cakes, biscuits, what have you that I like to eat, and I hope my customers enjoy that as well. Over the journey of time, we've evolved a lot of things. I, th I think you, you, you go in a little bit of a circle. I, I guess the older I get, I become more classic uh, and, and I'm more comfortable in, in simplicity. When you're younger, you want to try to marry many, many flavours and combinations together, which, you know, it's quite normal and quite exciting. But now I look at things and, you know, if we're going to do, you know, a, a new chocolate, say we've got an apricot and wasabi chocolate, which is, you, you know, quite unusual, but... We keep it very fresh, very natural. We just take some fresh apricots, we make a puree, then we make a little pat de fouille, a little jam, and then we infuse a little bit of wasabi with the chocolate and place that on the top and we coat that. Uh, and that's maybe as complex as I'll be. I think that's got a lot, quite a lot going on, but you really fundamentally, you've got this flavour of chocolate, apricot wasabi, and that's it. I don't need any more in the chocolates. And some of the chocolates that we have, you know, we've got a little Japanese black vinegar chocolate, which I adore, but that's just a little bit of black vinegar with the chocolate. It's very simple. And I think simplicity sometimes is, you know, you get more confident, I guess, and, and, and feel more at ease at what you do. Yeah. Well, it's nice, actually, I was having a look at your website last night, and I, I, I liked the sort of juxtaposition between your nostalgic range, where you had your kind of, your Jaffa cake and your moving yeah, shortbread, and yeah. it, was, it was nice to kind of go, okay, you don't take yourself too seriously. I'm sure it's doing a twist on those, but then you've got your incredibly extravagant. And it was nice to see that you still do both, because I've had a number of chefs work in my team, and, and you do, it is just a phase. You have the very young, very hungry chefs who, who overcomplicate food, and then they do go through that stage. And then there's always that challenge of, you know, do you sell what the customer wants to buy or what you want to make? And they're not always the same thing and that's you, tough you know is. you know at the end of the day you know we have to be commercial in some form and it is important that you're right you, you could make you have to make 
products that people will buy. I mean, one of the biggest chocolates that we sell is sea salt caramel. And, and I quite like our sea salt caramel, but is it my favorite chocolate? No chance. It's, it's yeah, you know, and, and that, but that's being sensible as well, because, you know, you, you can, you know, you can ignore a lot of your customer base and you've got to think about that too. You've got to, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, businesses have got to make money, haven't they? That's the way yeah. it is. So our, our most, you know, biggest selling dish has always been the burger. You know, always yeah, has okay. been for 15 yes. years yes. in every restaurant. Yes. Uh, yeah, is it is it the one that we want to sell and that we want to shout about? No, you know, we, we have it there because we know people all will buy it and it's, it's a similar And if not, they'll go somewhere else. So yeah, you've got exactly. to think about yeah. and, But if you're going to do it, just make it really bloody good and, yeah, and absolutely get yes. the very best ingredients yeah. and, uh, and don't, do, don't do too much with them. So um, where does that inspiration come from now? then around uh, around flavors and also where do you source your your chocolate from and what's the yeah. story as to why so okay so <clears throat> flavor wise everything's got to be fresh natural no preservatives no additives no colorings no compounds we if we do a mint chocolate we'll use fresh mint so we'll infuse it in a cream likewise with basil or tarragon or, or, or rosemary these are all got to be fresh and natural if we're going to use pistachios, we want Bronte from Sicily. If we're going to use hazelnuts, we want Piedmont, again from Italy, Vola almonds. We want the best ingredients we can get. And that's really paramount to my, my little business is, is in search of the best ingredients. Procuring high quality ingredients is, is absolutely key. Chocolate, we work with a very small company based in Tuscany. Uh, they're called Amadi, they're family run. I've been working with them directly now for 10 years. So they'll make various blends that I'll use for, uh, in, in my chocolate. Uh, they are regarded by many as, as the best bean-to-bar chocolate maker in, in the world. Uh, all the beans that they procure are all from South America, so Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador, Peru. Peru's fantastic for, for high-quality cocoa beans. And they'll all be the variety of what we call Trinitario and Criollo. So within the chocolate family, although there's thousands of uh, hybrids. There is the Forestero, the Trinitario, and the Criollo. The Forestero is the, the least, uh, what can I say, you can still make some reasonably good chocolate from it, but the best quality tends to be the Trinitario and the Criollo, and the best quality of them are coming from uh, South, in fact, they only really grow in South America and the Caribbean, and that's where they procure all the beans. So the chocolate they produce for me is sublime, and uh, again, that's key to what we do. It's, it's the best. This is why you know, I want people to hear these stories because in every niche, and it doesn't matter whether you're, uh, you know, the, the, the farmer kind of growing the fat on cattle on the farm, not all of them, whether you're the chocolatier, whether you've, you've you know, kind of scoured the world and start making your own business, the, the, the amount of work and the amount of knowledge that goes on that you can only get from from human beings who've dedicated a significant amount of their lives to their to their thing. But what you then know about, you know, I don't know where to go and get the, the best almonds or the best nuts or the best chocolate, albeit that I'm learning by doing this podcast because yes. I'm meeting lots of yous yes. who yes. take everything to a level which is incredible and I think that's why restaurants are so expensive because all you've really got to do is get the very best people find the very best suppliers who really know their shit who really love what they yes. do and then what a privilege it is to then you know, bring to all that to that. one place and, and, and to, to bring it for the consumer and say there you go like you know this this we've really scoured the world for this and that's the point of difference between the kind of like these high street kind of big brands and what's really properly going on behind the scenes I mean much of the chocolate market will be bought, the beans will be bought in the futures market, not far from here, the stock exchange. I mean, chocolate is very, very much a commoditized uh, 
product ingredient, if, if, if you like. And it really wasn't until the 1980s that a sort of movement of the fine chocolate market started to evolve. And hence, people like myself, people like Pierre Hermé, Jean-Paul Heaven, they've all came out of that, uh, uh, you know, that new you know, wave of, of, of chocolatiers. That, that's really where it yeah. comes from. It's exciting. I, I love the fact that, that as human beings, we can get so bloody anal and passionate and excited it, it, about one niche and yeah, take it to an absolute yes, extreme. Yes. Because it would be disappointing, you know, the, the industrialization of food in the last 50 years. Mm. It, you know, it's just a cycle and, and hopefully we'll come out the other side. But I just love the fact that, that yeah, there's enough people who are just taking it to another bonkers level. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, no, you're welcome. <laughs> I, 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 I lo- you're right. I love the actual, you know, when you really get under the nitty gritty and the whole detail that goes in to what we do, whether it's the science, the art, the procuring, it is quite a, you know, it's quite fulfilling. That yeah. You yeah, it is. It's good. Getting back a little bit then to the business side. So mm-hmm. fundamentally, it's got to be a business. It's got to make money. Much as we can go Absolutely, off on our adventures yeah. and get into yeah. the detail and love it and get super passionate, excited, and not everything we do can be about money, but it's got to be there. Um, 2008, you go into into partnership with the, with the Rothschild family. So what was the motivation for that? What, what were they providing at the time? Yeah. <laughs> so I suppose financial support. Yeah. And, and I guess an opportunity to take my little shop in Richmond, which by now was, was, was going you know, great guns, uh, and, and I guess taking it to the next level. And taking that, uh, you know, whereas we had, you know, I, I guess I look back and think, well, that's kind of the dream, kitchen above the shop underneath. And you can make a little living at it, but it's a little living. Now, I, I'm actually quite easy where we are now, and, 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 and I like where I am now. But, you know, sometimes you've got to try things and go down different routes. And there was an opportunity there that, that was too good to be true. Uh, something's too good to be true but anyway but it was an exciting partnership we we set up the business to go you know I guess into central London if you like when I was in outskirts in Richmond and, and I didn't have the financial clout to go, to, to, go and, to go and do that we owned a beautiful shop uh, with Mr Rothschild in Belgravia we opened a fabulous I guess production facility in Twickenham which allowed us to start to supply various hotels restaurants set a great website online business and we also owned a concession in Harrods so so really I went from the, being a little shop in Richmond into, into a much uh, you know bigger brand if you want and, and, and I think in that journey you know I evolved as a person but I think the brand you know went to another level which you know I, I look back at and, and I think well that was that, that was good that was you know a fantastic opportunity sadly like all things we decided that it was best to go different ways about maybe four years ago now three and a half years ago yeah, yeah. okay it was still a decent a decent chunk of t- time and like yeah, you say took you to another level yeah yeah business um partnerships and 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 part of this is you know the, the kind of the, the business of hospitality they're quite complicated things or quite complex things looking back is there things you learned that you would do differently that that experience taught you and does that have yeah. an impact on how you're moving forwards now I, I think i think what i learned in the journey that you know i, I am i like to be in charge of what i do I, I think for me, I, I wanted to be William Curley again. And if that was going to be smaller and more niche, I was quite happy doing that. And, and, and you know, sometimes, you know, in, in business, everyone's got different views. And, and I think that's fine. But I think for me, I, I knew that I just wanted to be true to what I believe in, you know, making great chocolates and patisserie 
and and just you know be myself. And if that, if that was going to be smaller, th then so be it. And 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 now I'm, I'm I'm much happier with myself, and and that's important. And and I think Mr. Rothschild is happier too, and I think that's that's good. Good. So we've we've come out in a better place. We've come out in a so better place. So you yes. uh, you retained Harrods, and now you're yes. on your you've, you've kept the website, but mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. you do some partnerships with various mm -hmm. people. But the next thing is the shop, is it? Yeah, Am I right yeah. in thinking that's, that's absolutely? Yes. Yeah. Oh. So we retained Harrods. I've got a little kitchen now in in North Acton. Uh, which I quite like actually, <laughs> and uh, it's very up and coming acting. And I used to run a swimming pool in acting oh, in another you? time. Yeah, yeah acting pools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's okay, but it's just a kitchen there, and it works, and it's very easy to get into to central London, which, which is ideal for us. And we've got some great uh, partnerships with hotels, so we do a lot of the amenities and, and work with Carinthia, the Mandarin Oriental, in fabulous hotel. Claridge's, the Ritz, Intercontinental. So we've got some great partnerships and we also do partnerships with Glen Moringey and Lauren Perry and lots of events, which is fantastic. I'm sitting here today in the Gherkin. We, we do a few uh, events here. We do a lot of work with the guys at Cersei's, which is uh, you know very, very exciting. In fact, if you come to the Gherkin, you can sample a few of our chocolates that we, uh, we do. We do a great uh, little uh, Blanco di Criollo. So we talked about Peru earlier on. We get the, the, the chocolate from Amade there, and we make a wonderful chocolate for the guys here. Got a little spicy caramel and a, a little Richmond Park honey. And is this, is this on the sort of the pop up? I was going to yeah, say pop up. Yeah, so pop up's yeah, probably the wrong one. You're more of a street yeah, food well, thing, but, but you're uh, only here for a limited period yeah, of time. Well, 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 there's two things here. In fact, there's three things here. We do we do regular chocolate events with the guys at the, the Gherkin. Right. Uh, we've been doing a meal, a chocolate uh, inspired meal, which will run until the. Sadly, till the end of the month, so you could still. I was going to say it's only a few days. The chances of me getting this podcast yeah, out this afternoon, okay, so will, you? <laughs> will you do it again uh, at some yeah, point? Yeah, yeah, I think we will. It's, it's been great, really successful. I had a look at the, the menu last uh, yeah, night. It looked delicious. It's You've got a hint of chocolate in every course. Absolutely, that's the whole idea, just to get the the the, the great world of chocolate out there. Uh, and we also have our own little uh, chocolates at the end in the menu here at the Gherkin, and that that will continue hopefully forever and a day. And we've got various chocolates there from the, the William Cully range that we have. And we've also got a few different chocolates in some of the other Cersei's establishments just around the corner at the Barbican. And we've also got chocolates, uh, which we have as Petit Fours, but also we match with Champagne at St Pancras. Okay. So it's been, yeah, a, a great little company to, to work with, very like-minded. In fact, hopefully in the summer, uh, we're working on a special afternoon tea promotion at Blenheim Palace oh, really? in Oxfordshire. Nice. Yes. That's, a, so that's nice. a nice place to go anyway, let alone if we can come and have your afternoon tea. Yeah. So, But the most exciting thing since... I have, I guess, relaunched my little self. Uh, it's, I'm opening in the next month or so a new boutique in Soho. Amazing. Excellent, exciting. So the, so the work's and going on just now, yeah. Is it? You're literally, yeah, in, in build, are you? We're in build, yes. And you, yes. Uh, you crowdfunded that, is that right? Well, yes, we crowdfunded it, yes. I've looked at crowdfunding and I think it's fascinating. I think if one good thing came off the back of the recession, the concept of going to lots of people for a little bit of money rather than one person for a lot of money is a really exciting thing. But how was that journey? Because yeah, yeah, I understand so, there was a bit of stress in, yeah, in that. Yeah, there well. was, nothing's, there was, nothing's completely easy where money's concerned. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, I'd never... I mean, I, mean, I think the fact that... My brand was still in Harrods, and, and, we've, and we've, you know, we've kept we've kept ourselves out there, if that makes sense. And Harrods has been amazing, you know. I mean, I've been in Harrods now for best part of eight years, and, and that's been a great relationship. They're very, you know, important and fundamental to the William Cully brand. But having my own small boutique, it, it's it's key to, to to what I do, my own my own window, if you like. And during the last eighteen months or so, I looked at various different options, different sites. Uh, 
different ways to, I guess, to raise a little bit of money to do it because we only need a little bit of money to open up a new boutique. It's, it's not the cheapest thing in the world to do. Uh, and we, you know, set our sights on, you know, for various reasons. In Soho, it's on Smith's Court, just off Brewer Street. But of course, to do that, we had to raise a little bit of capital. We have some capital to put in and we had to raise a little bit more. So I, I, I guess in discussions with a good friend of mine, Gary Usher, we decided that we'd have a go at the, 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 the crowdfunding route. Now, crowdfunding, not to, to lose any equity, uh, that, that, was, that wouldn't be a clever idea, but to give rewards, prizes, etc. So you could have booked a, a, I've got two this weekend, actually, uh, a, a course for four or five, six people with William Curley, a truffle-making course at your house. Uh, you could have purchased various uh, books of nostalgia was one of the prizes. There's uh, a few talks, demonstrations were some of the prizes uh, and, and various things that we did unique for the, the crowdfund, the special treats, more unique uh, opportunities. We've got a great meal up at Sticky uh, in Chester with Gary and his team at the end of May. We did something with Adam Handling at the Frog in Covent Garden. So we have lots of unique uh, prizes and events that came off the back of that. But of course, when you say we're going to raise £80,000, that's quite a lot of money to raise. And we did it over four weeks. The first week was fantastic. It, 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 you know, it flew along. Uh, and I thought, gosh, this, this, is, this is going to do it. We're, we're going to do it. Uh, and then it stopped for two weeks. Now, I was warned, warned that in the middle of this, it would really slow down. I didn't think it slowed down so dramatically. It, it virtually comes to a standstill. Oh. And the reason being is, in the beginning, people that you know, friends, family, etc., want to give you a leg up. They want to say, look, what's the boy getting a shop? That'd be fantastic. So they uh, put a little bit of money in. They'll, they'll, buy, they'll buy, buy one of the rewards and you, you've got that support. But then other people who may be interested, they need to get the word out. You need to build up on the social media. I mean, the campaign was virtually driven through my Twitter account and, and wow. getting people to retweet and what have you. <laughs> but you have to get that out. It takes time to, to generate the, the, the masses. And on top of that, and we all do this, you see how long has that got to go? Oh, it's got another two weeks. I'll go back to it in a week's time. And it wasn't really till the last week that it started to go. And then you could just see it every day gaining momentum and you think, gosh, we're going to get here on this, we're going to get here. And we did finally get there uh, a day before. Yeah. The day I was going to say, yeah, yeah. how close before. Yeah. And we before. broke it by a few things. We've got 84, so oh, really? that helps the shop even more. The money's all went into the shop. We've got a beautiful cabinet that's getting built in Italy with some incredible marble that'll be around it. We've got a great little carpenter <laughs> who's doing some fabulous shelving. We've used Jonathan Clark, a good friend of mine, to help. Uh, as an architect, so we get the shop right, and it wow. all looks it looks special. Sounds like a, a, a very small budget to, to open a shop in uh, Soho. So it's, really, yeah, it's been done. I think we've done it cleverly, and and, and hopefully it will uh, it will excite everyone, and it will be uh, an amazing little project. Yeah, good. Well, good luck. And, thank uh, you. Thank you. So the other part of your uh, your career, which still, you know, I mean, I, I was exhausted just reading what you'd done last night, but you've got a number of, uh, of awards and accreditations. Which is the one that means the most to you? Gosh, uh, I think the one standout. Now, now I'm, a part, I'm part of an association, of, which is a French association traditionally called Rally Desert. Okay. And it's, uh, I don't proclaim to be, but it's the 100 best sort of pastry chef chocolatiers in the world who, who are invited to be part of this organisation. It's mainly French, but there's myself and Alain Roux, who has kind of taken the baton from his father, Michel Roux, who is an MOF uh, in France, and there's various others from Belgium, Spain, Italy, Japan, America, etc. part of this. And we meet 
twice a year uh, in France to go to seminars, to, I guess, show each other our work, just so we can all keep evolving and learning, because that's what it's all about. However, the most important accolade that I have achieved, uh, and, and it's not something that I was given, I had to go and earn it, uh, is what we call the Master of Culinary Arts, which uh, is a, an accolade that comes around or an award, an examination, I suppose, an examination would be the right word, which comes around every four years, approximately, in the UK. And it's uh, taken from the MOF, the Milieu de France Award in France for patisseries and chocolatiers. And, and in France, it's been going for over 100 years, and, and it really does, you know, how would I put it, the best of the best in your profession. Uh, you know, it, it gives you that how would I put it, the accolade to say that you really know your craft if you want, you are a true master of your profession. <clears throat> in the UK, it's been going since 1996. To date, there are now seven people that have achieved this accolade and I achieved mine in 2013. And it wasn't the first time, it took me three, it was my third attempt wow. to achieve it. So 12 years. <coughs> 12 years in the making, my yes. My goodness, yes. that's, that's uh, uh, some it's, commitment. It's tough and, and you go through, you know, there's a paper entry initially um, and then you have a semi-final, which is a 11, 12 hour cook. And it covers all aspects of what we do. So it's really raw cooking. You go in in the morning, you basically cook all day. It covers from desserts to petit fours, to bakery work, to a small sculpture, uh, an entremet, petit gâteau. It's very, very diverse. Biscuits, cakes, you know, it, it really, you have to show all of your skills you know, within this time frame that you, you know, understand what you're doing. But that just gets you to the final. And really, the, the first time I'd done it, I actually failed the semi-final, which, you know, isn't great. You don't feel good when you fail something. But believe me, when you fail a final, you, it really hurts because the final takes up, you know, it's like a year of your life. Wow. You have to produce a, a sculpture in sugar and chocolate that you take uh, around a theme and the theme, when I did it, I based mine, it was, it was about London theatres, and I did mine on The Lion King. So I did a chocolate sculpture uh, with different decorations and skills all about The Lion King. And then on a day, you've got the best part of a 15-hour cook where you go through all the skills that I've just talked about previously from you know, bakery, cakes, patisserie, chocolate work. You have to produce a small sculpture on the day. Uh, is very, very tight in the time frame to do it. In fact, in the last award, they actually, we actually increased the time slightly, but we made it over two days because Gosh. it was so draining when we did it in 2013. And at the end, every element of what you do has to pass. So if you, you burn your biscuits, for example, that's, you're in big trouble. You've got to try to find a way around that and, and, and solve it. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I've been so proud to achieve anything. Uh, in my life, yeah. Yeah, that's mm. incredible uh, to do it in, in any profession. But I think for just, again, particularly in yours, with that, that level of detail, and, and there's no room, there's no margin of error. So, uh, yeah, I can't imagine the, the, the stress of doing that. And you've still got all of your hair, not even a grey hair, so hats off to you. You're ice cool. Yeah, yeah I've got a few. I've, they're coming through. No, no, they're, they're there, <laughs> believe me. They're, they're coming through. But, yeah, I, was, I, was, I still am very proud of, of being a master of the culinary arts. It means a lot. And I can use the initials MCA 
uh, and it's yeah, it's yeah. the highest accolade for sure. In it's, our country. Uh, yeah, no, it's impressive. When I was uh, researching it last night, I thought, wow, that's yeah, you 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 deserve your uh, your reputation. So well done. You're, you're genuinely that, that, thank you. Thank um, you. And the other one then was uh, a next generation award. So what was that about? Because I know this uh, yes. this kind of idea of passing on your skills is important to you. Yeah, absolutely, and I think in what we do, if we don't pass on the baton, you know, this this you know what we do disappears, if you like. And there's a massive movement in France about, you, you know, in reality, say, you have to have every year an apprentice that comes through your kitchen. That, that's fundamental. And, and the French are very, very good at passing the skills and the knowledge on. Obviously, in the UK, my profession hasn't evolved in the same way. We come from a different background. In fact, there's many great French pastry chefs, Belgium, Swiss, Germans, Italians that have came here and brought many skills to, to the UK over the years. But we have got a growing industry here now. There is more people you know, when they're young, become, knowing they can become a patissier, becoming in the chocolatier. So, so we actually have this now starting to build and starting to grow. So it's very important for people like myself to help develop and nourish that next generation and help them gain the skills that they'll need to hopefully surpass me and be better. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing more satisfying than what I do to see someone that's working or work for me be able to do something better than me. I've obviously trained them well. That, that, that's important. So yeah, I think in 2000, and, I think it was 2014, we, we received uh, from the Academy of Chocolate an accolade, uh, you know, for helping develop, and, and we've developed quite a few, you know, young people now the head PTCA at uh, Harrods. He worked for me for many years. The head PTCA at Pennyhill, uh, Clarities. There's many that have, you know, went through my ranks now that are, 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 are you know, are doing very well for themselves, which is, which is great to see. But we, we're giving this award, I guess, for our, uh, our uh, input and our, I guess, determinations to help the next generation, you know, you know, achieve in their profession. Yeah, that's good. Why do you think it is then when we, that, that, that Europe and you, know, you mentioned Brussels and France a lot, that they have this kind of, um, this, this history, I suppose, and this respect and this reputation for food that we don't have here? Why, why does that come about? And is it genuinely changing? I was chatting to... Um, Simon from the UK wine the other day about champagne and English sparkling wine and the fact that now it genuinely is good, whereas it, it didn't used to be. Uh, and actually what we've done really well in the UK is innovate. So whereas um, in champagne, for example, they're steeped in history and tradition, actually we're a little bit more kind of forward thinking. We're not, we don't have the same kind of constraints, I suppose. Mm. Is, it, is it similar in chocolate? Are we catching up fast and are we doing well, anything different? Or there's, are we there's, a still few, there's a few questions back, There's lots there. of questions yeah, there, yeah, so it's a, a bit well, of a brain well, dump. Well, well, historic, them as you wish. Well, historically wise... You know, my profession, as we know it, although, of course, people baked and cooked in some form, you know, in medieval times and after that, but in the late 1700s, there was a chap called uh, Marie-Antoine Carême, and he really was the orchestrator of, in fact, on my MCA uh, medal, if you like, there's a, a picture of him. So he was the, you know... The, the, the founder, the father figure, the man who started my profession and, and, and kind of took it to the, uh, the next level. He put foundation in what we do. He created incredible piece monte sculptures. He helped create many of the classic dishes that we know today. He really put something in place that was sort of, you know, that, that was unique. And of course, the French Revolution had just happened. So many, many chefs had been working in Royal establishments, bakers, chefs, patissiers, they then went to the streets and had to make a living. So restaurants started to open, basically in front of someone's house, I suppose it would have been, and so did, you know, 
they would have been bakeries, of course, but I think there's a higher level brought, maybe more patisseries, et cetera, et cetera. And what they were trying to do is they were trying to replicate what they had been doing in these grand houses. And that was the beginning of my profession, if you like, in the patisserie side. And Karem was very much, you know, he, he was Napoleon chef at, at, at one point. He was very much the orchestrator of that. During the mid-1800s, there was a period which we would call the the golden era in patisserie and many, many dishes, many, many chefs, many shops all started to open around Paris and France in general that got that whole journey sort of going. So if you like, I'm not going to say first to market, but they were very much the orchestrators of what we do today, hence why they've got that great tradition and, uh, and history. Now, of course, we have evolved massively. Uh, and, and that there's no question about that but we don't have that same sort of starting block chocolates they started mainly in the early part of the 1900s so a block of chocolate such as wow this. that's some block of chocolate that's just appeared that's oh my goodness yeah, it's a big huge. block of chocolate so this didn't appear really till the 1840s so prior to the 1840s we uh we were all busy making a chocolate drink. So the, the likes of Cabaret, Fry and Roundtree, <clears throat> the holy grail then was to make a smooth chocolate drink. But by chance, by luck, we don't really know, Joseph Fry created a tablet of chocolate in the 1840s. And that was the beginning of, I guess, the first chocolate revolution, if you like. And of course, the Industrial Revolution was on and companies who were making the chocolate drink started to make chocolate bars as well. By the late 1800s, uh, at that point, they made dark chocolate and it probably would have been quite bitter and quite powerful. By the late 1800s, dairy or dairy powder had been added and milk chocolate was created and likewise white chocolate. That was done in, in, in Switzerland. In the early 1900s, chefs, if you like, started to create chocolates, bonbons, filled, Italians filled chocolates in Belgium, particularly in Brussels. And that was the beginning of the full chocolate, the, the, the chocolatier, if you like. That's where that sort of stems from. And of course, a little bit like the French, with French patisserie, they were very much first to market and that's where it kind of comes from. So historically wise, both those countries, both those cities in particular, have an incredible history with, with my profession, hence why they're always, you know, got, you know, great stories and, uh, you know, great foundation in what they do. In the UK, you said something that really sort of links with me. We don't have the same constraints, the same shackles, if you like. What we do and, and what's happened in London, and I've really been in London, you know, since the whole food sort of, you know, uh, the whole food evolution, if you like, has been incredible. And a lot of that has been down to the fact that we don't have the same history and also the same pressures. So it's okay for me to do a tarragon and mustard chocolate and sell it in my shop, no one's going to get too offended by it. If anything, people quite like to see me pushing my little boundaries out. While I think in France, you could find it a bit more difficult because they are very, very traditional. Now, I love tradition, and I've talked about that. I love being classic in what I do, but I do like to maybe, you know, make things a little bit more interesting, a little bit more exciting sometimes. And I think that's, you know, what, what makes London in particular so uh, exciting, you know, within the food industry. Mm. I think it's really interesting. I'm a, I'm a you know sort of proud Brit, and it's frustrating sometimes our lack of reputation. Uh, not not now, but historically and deservedly so. We had a we had a bad reputation for for food and, yeah. and a drink, and were considered to be you know fairly backwards for it. But it's been fascinating to watch that speed of change and trying to understand it. Like it's interesting the point you just made there about yeah that that lack of 
constraint. We seem to have this ability to learn fast and to innovate, and particularly with what's going on around uh, Brexit and trying to work out our place in the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's it's nice to know <laughs> that we've Brexit still got... Came into that, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I managed to get quite a long way without mentioning it, but yeah. it's, it's nice to know we can still do it. How um, heavy is that that chocolate you just that, opened? That was, which a, one, just, that was a one, that was one kilogram kilo. block, yeah. And, 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 and I'll let you taste it's a little bit in a minute. It's instantaneously filled the room with this intense kind of chocolate aroma. Absolutely, that's real chocolate. That's what it's all about. It doesn't smell sweet. It just has great chocolate aroma. Real yeah. full. And yeah. I mean, we're yeah. in a reasonably sized room, but it was yeah. like instant. It was just like, wow, I hear that. Sight, it's escaped. Yeah. It's escaped. It has. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. It smells yeah. amazing. I'm glad you said we're going to get to try a bit, although I won't eat the whole <laughs> kilogram. Um, so now then, you you know, like I say, you've, you've worked for so many different chefs. You must have evolved your, and, and, and now you're, you're interested in passing those skills uh, on. What's your style of, uh, of mentorship? And, and is it very different to what you went through is it is it an, a further evolution yeah i mean that's a good question uh, i think you know when we have a young chef we, we want them to get the foundation i keep using this word but foundation and, and what they do so if you take you know broad terms you know pastry dough work knowing how to laminate as in puff pastry uh, or, or vimagery uh, knowing how to you know, just, just to do simple things, lining tartlet cases very, very well, knowing how to make a very good creme patissier, knowing how to make a very good sabillon base mousse or a creme a rich custard, all these sort of skills, and not just making something once, being able to make these skills over a period and be making them as if they're second nature to you, making a very good ganache, knowing how to infuse the creams for the chocolates, making a good caramel so it isn't too sweet, but it's got that kind of rich, full flavour. I think... I just want young people, or, or any age, that work for me to, to master those base skills. And then when they have those skills in place, it, it gives them the foundation to, you know, to go, you know, whether it's working with me to have more input in what we do, or, or, or they, they go to the, you know, the next stage of their career. But I think what, how I was taught, I still, I guess, try to keep that sort of structure. I, I quite like how I was taught, and I, I like the, the pillars of what we do. I, I try not to, to step too far out of that. I, I like I like a good classic foundation, and I like people, young people, just to grasp those skills. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's it's good to know that they are being handed on because I think there's so much this huge growth in the casual dining sector where all too often you just get thrown in as a, as a cook more than a chef and you never go through that classic training and yeah. you think you're a chef and you're called a chef and hats off they're working hard and they're producing food but I, I, yeah it concerns me that that so many now don't go through that that traditional route yeah. into the kitchen and getting the base in the work yeah, yeah really understanding where yeah. where food comes from and that history of food which is why hopefully conversations like this in, inspire people um, to do it so which part of your job now gives you the most pleasure hmm I would say well there's various things I mean I, I think fundamentally my customers being happy there's nothing nicer when you get feedback whether it's in the store or they've written to you saying that they, they loved the Easter egg that you did this year or thank you so much for uh, the chocolates we had last week they were amazing we loved the birthday cake whatever I think that is satisfying, and, and, and particularly people take the time to, 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 to write to you. Uh, I, I, I like that a lot. I, I can't deny that. I think that makes me feel good that my customers are happy and, and that knows we're doing the right things. And I guess also seeing young people evolve and, and, and go to that next stage, that makes me feel good too. I mean, I, mean, I think what I do, I, I try to be broad and, 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 and you know, look at it on, on, on the big scale. Um, 
and having a happy team is important. You know, I worked in restaurants where I'd see people come, many would come after three, four months and move to the next one and you had a continuous cycle of people coming and going. That's not good. You know, I'd rather people were steady, evolved. I don't want to say take the time, but, but you know, learn at a pace that, that works for everyone. And then, you know, we get the benefit of that. That's kind of key. And, 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 and I think seeing someone go through that whole journey, it, it's satisfying. Yeah, nice. It's funny how we get this, this uh, amazing, you know, they say it's better to give than receive, but so, so commonly um, the answer to that question is in hospitality is that we just really like to give other people pleasure and to see them light up. And, and, and hospitality so often is around time as well as taste and flavor so so often people with you they might be sharing those chocolates or sharing a cake i suppose and, it, and it's that time with family or maybe time with the kids where you're giving them their easter eggs and stuff like that but but food is such a nostalgic way of creating these memories and life experiences i, I think. mean food you know you think about times in life and you've done something special and more often than not food has been around whether you've went to a great restaurant with your wife partner uh, friends whatever and it's an incredible uh evening around the table, whether it's friends coming over and you know, whether you go away on a holiday somewhere, but I'm sure when you go away somewhere, there'll be an evening or an afternoon where you went for lunch or dinner somewhere and that plays a massive impact into it. I think food, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the power of food, the table. It's an incredible, uh, you know, part of our lives. And even I've got two young daughters and, and for me, I try as much as I can to at least have one meal a day around the table, whether it's breakfast or dinner. I always try to have that bit of time so we can, I don't know, chat, I try to have no mobile phones, no tablets, no television, but music's okay. But just, you know, because I think as a special, you know, it's a, it's a very special, uh, you know, part of the day. Definitely, you know? yeah. I drive my wife bonkers because even if it's just dinner at home with the kids, I still music on, some candles, ambient, maybe light the fire. It's hospitality, isn't it? And you can make something, Marco said something to me so many years ago, This it still resonates with me today. He said, would you like a coffee? I said, love a coffee, Marco, please, thank you. You've called Marco, Marco. And uh, not Chef, you've <laughs> called Marco. And uh, I, mean, I, I said, I'll just, just have a, a plastic cup, whatever. He said, William, no, no, no. Have the coffee in beautiful China. When you, and it's true, and it, because it will taste better. Yeah, and it does, there's true. something incredible yeah. about it, just when it's all, you know. Yeah, because so much of it is, it is around how we feel. This is the art of the restaurateur and why it's not always the case with chefs, because sometimes it's always just about the food, but it is, it's how we feel when we're eating that food as well, and the lighting and the music. Massive, and the massive. So yeah, my wife doesn't get it, and she's a bit more of a sort of a, a plonk the food on the plate, whereas I can't help myself but plate it up and present it. I'll make the kids beans on toast, and it's <laughs> still got a, a little finesse <laughs> to it. You know, yeah. the, yeah. and I just, the beans, yeah, yeah. You just, just, just can't yeah. help it. But there's it's something ingrained. nice about that. I mean, it, can, it does come I think about my grandmother and my dad, my dad used to cook he didn't do bakery but my father used to make great stews sort of my mother they, they all cooked their own food I mean that was I came from that that generation you know there wasn't a ready meal was something I didn't actually realise it really existed until I was older in life you know going to the supermarket and buying something you put in the microwave I mean, what was that about yeah. you know they cooked their own food you know and it does kind of come from the heart there's something very real and raw about that yeah yeah, and that speed of change with, with convenience food in the last 20-30 years has been bonkers um, with all of the, the non we're coming, coming, coming to the end but with all of that experience you've got now and I think there's a lot of people I'm sure come to you you know they'll, they'll listen to this and they'll hopefully be inspired to get into the industry or, or more and more people seem to be wanting 
wanting to go into um, hospitality as a job. It's funny being up here in London and I just spent the two, last couple of hours walking around and it, I used to live in London and it reminded me of this, you know, of, 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 of all the suits and, and how lo- grateful I am, I suppose, that I don't work in a bank. Uh, yeah. But I know a lot of people, are, nothing yeah. wrong with that, but uh, no. there's a lot of people who kind of, yeah, leave banks and go into baking or do something else. But business advice wise, on that, on that, knowing that so many hospitality businesses fail, is there any business advice that you hear where you go, that's nonsense. That that's from an academic book. Or is there anything yeah. you hear that's really good where I mean, you'd I mean, say, I mean, ignore that, do that? I mean, I mean probably if I went into a, a business course, uh, I actually had a, a great friend of mine. He worked at the Gavroche. He worked with Marco with me, and he was actually trained at Glen Eagles when I, I when we were younger. And his plan was to open his own restaurant. He uh, now works uh, for a big company as a new product developer. And I remember saying to him, "Why did you not ever open your own restaurant?" He goes, "Because I went to business school." And after I went to business school, I realized the risks, the complexities, it, it, it was just too much. And uh, I wasn't willing to do that. And I suppose sometimes you can, I think if your heart's in something and you want to do it, you should do it. I think you can get advice from people and I think you can buy books and do courses as much as you want. But ultimately, you'll only be a success if you put in, you know, with your heart on your sleeve, you'll know this yourself, you've got to be very determined. Uh, a good accountant probably helps to make sure you've got your margins right and you've got your projections right. I think I think that is fundamentally key. But it's all about what you're willing to put into it. You've got to put all your energy into it. And if you can energize yourself, your team will more than likely follow the way you are. Uh, and, and that's, for me, you know, it's, it's all about energy. It's all about what you're going to put into it. Yeah, no, it's a good answer. And you're right. Restaurants have got too many moving parts, too much complexity, tight margins. So the, the first advice is, is don't do it. But then if you're going to do it, you've got to love it. And it's got yeah, to be... Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, I wouldn't do what I do unless I loved no. what I do. I mean, I don't think you could. The shop in Soho. And then yeah. what else? What's on the agenda then yeah, for the next I mean, couple of years? Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do, do you plan that yeah. far ahead? I, I think I probably don't want that far ahead. I, I think for me, the, the shop in Soho is kind of everything. That's what I've put the last sort of three years into. So I'm, I'm incredibly... Uh, excited about that and I don't plan to open a string of shops I, you know you can never say never but my plan very much is Soho to be the the front the the, the flagship of the William Curley brand so, I mean Harrods is there which is fantastic but but but, but the own personal little shop that, that's going to be Soho and, and I like working with other brands so Cersei's Lauren Perrier Glenn Morangie that's important for me so doing promotions uh, doing events with those guys that, that's probably the, the you know the the other sort of projects that I'll, I'll continue to work on. Yeah. So do you still get in the kitchen in that way then? Because I imagine the opportunity, it seems like the ideal scenario where you've got your own boutique where you can really show off what you want to get excited about, but a lot of chefs miss being in the kitchen. So yeah. do you still get to yeah, get in the I kitchen? Do, yeah, or? I mean, my, I mean, we have, at the moment, we've, we've, got, uh, we've got six chefs with me in, in the kitchen and, and two of them, in fact, I guess three now, uh, have been with me for over... Uh, two and a half, three years, and one's been with me for, well, two have been with me for over five. So, so I've got great, you know, ex- experience there. So I, I can trust, you know, my, my team to, you know, do the good work of what, what the brand's about. But no, I'm there a lot. I'm there, I'm there virtually every day, uh, one way or the other. Uh, in fact, after here, I'm, I'm going back to the kitchen. Uh, so so I, I think I, I do what I do to be around what I do, if, if that makes sense. I, I yeah. want to be part of what I do. I want to make, still want to make chocolates and cakes. That, that's fundamental to me, hence why... I guess I am back where I am, I suppose. Yes, good. Well, congratulations. So where do people go to find out more? Then where can they go, A, to buy your chocolate, but B, just to follow your journey and what you do? So you can obviously go to my website, just williamcarly.co.uk. That will give you all the information. If you're in central London, you can either go to Harrods, to our concession, 
or, or you can go in the next month or so to our new shop in Soho, which is on Smith's Court, just off Brewer Street in Soho, a 90-second walk from Piccadilly Circus. Amazing. That's an awesome location. location no yeah. no actual open date yet? Or? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm hope, I'm, mate, I, I've been asked I, I've been asked this once I've been asked this a thousand times yeah. the idea was by the end of May okay. but the, the builder will actually be the, the shop will be complete but we're getting a bespoke cabinet made and it comes from Italy right. and uh, the, the Italians just basically had two weeks off at Easter oh, of and they're now just yeah, getting yeah, back into it now goes off doesn't it yeah. Yeah. so I, I'm still hoping end of May but I think realistically I, I think we're looking at the end of the first beginning of the second week in June I'm just okay. being I, I, I'm having to accept that just now no. and, and believe me don't I worry this won't go out so the builders say I'm in the process of building a restaurant at the moment we're due oh. to open in three weeks yeah and, okay. Uh, okay it's funny because people keep saying the same thing what's the opening date what's the opening date and I've got two I've got one that I'm telling the building crew and yeah. then I've got one that I'm you're, telling the public because I know they're not going to match because the building to crew are going to yeah. go over it's hard, and the customers it? are going to want to come in early and you just go look I can't go out so we just say mid-May and this this will probably go out after that anyway but yeah by the time this goes live hopefully your shop will be open my new restaurant will be open <laughs> and the world um, will be good yeah but, but and the world will be good and here we are we're practically on top of the world we're on top of the city of London so William thanks for spending the time it's been really good to chat really good to hear your story uh, I'm going to watch it with uh, intrigue to see where you go next but oh, you've achieved so you. much already That's so uh, thank you for spending the time I really enjoyed it thank you thank cheers So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time. Cheers. Cheers.